Renaissance, many men sought their fortune with the sword. Many died a violent and anonymous death, but a rare few covered their names with glory. The Italians called these men the condottieri. These are their stories. behind the duel of Guido Rangoni and Hugo Popoli has so far been a private affair limited to the area around Bologna and the struggles of their respective families. But the flood of great historical events was now coming to Italy and both men were soon to be trapped up in its waters. By August of 1508, the supporters of the Bentivoglio family were feeding the worms. The death of the daring condottieri Mancino had sounded a death knell for their cause. The Bentivoglio were on the run again with a fat price tag on their heads. Bounty hunters followed their steps like greedy shadows. Their nephew, Guido Rangoni, did not have a price tag on his head, but he had been excommunicated. The Duke of Ferrara reluctantly allowed Rangoni to stay in the city of Ferrara for now. But at any moment, Rangoni might be trussed up in chains and sent to Bologna as a sacrificial offering to the Pope. The Bentivoglio seemed as likely to become lords of Bologna again as they were to be lords of the moon. So far, they had proved to be no match for the devious cardinal, Francis Alidosi. An ordinary man would have let the Bentivoglio cause wither and die, but not Cardinal Alidosi. He borrowed from Machiavelli's dictum, Let them hate us so long as they fear us. And Cardinal Alidosi dared the people of Bologna to revolt against him. He drove them to revolt. There was no more potent symbol of tyranny in the Renaissance than a citadel. From a citadel, lords could descend at night upon a sleeping city and round up their enemies. If the people of the city grew tired of their tyrants, they could do nothing but rage impotently against a citadel. Just as castles provided a base for robber barons in the countryside, so too did a citadel provide a perfect base for a tyrant in a city. The Bentivoglio had never suggested building a citadel in Bologna. They'd probably never even dreamed of it. Theirs had been a grand house in the city, the very grandest in fact, but it had been just a house. Alidosi wanted a fortress, and he wanted it located just off the city's main square. That way, when the Bolognese looked up, they would see his cannons leveled directly at them. He destroyed 32 shops in the middle of the city to make room for his citadel. Then he levied a massive tax on the city to pay for its construction. He drove the men building the citadel mercilessly. Day by day, the citadel grew taller. It was like adding kindling to the dying coals of a fire. A shadow war flared anew outside of Bologna between supporters of the Bentivoglio and those of the Pope. Alidosi was failing in one objective. He wanted Hugo Popoli to throw in his lot with the Bentivoglio rebels, just like some members of the Pepoli family had already done. Hugo was just too popular a figure in the city for Alidosi to stand. Unfortunately for the cardinal, Hugo refused to join the Bentivoglio. In fact, he almost certainly fought against the Bentivoglio. In doing so, he would have connected himself in the minds of the Bolognese people with the hated cardinal, and this would have diminished his popularity and prestige. Even when Alidosi lost, he still managed to win. 
Work on the new citadel continued at a rapid speed and was nearly finished when the eyes of Italy turned once again to Bologna. War was coming. In Bologna, rumors swirled over the big question. Who was going to command the legions of Pope Julius II? On October 16th of 1508, Cardinal Alidosi put those rumors to bed. In the city's great cathedral, under the eye of its larger-than-life statue of Pope Julius II, Cardinal Alidosi held a solemn ceremony to anoint a new captain general of the papal army. Alidosi blessed the battle flag of the papal army. He blessed the bejeweled baton of the captain general. Then he gave these symbols of office to the new commander, the 19-year-old Duke of Urbino. The many grizzled and experienced condottieri present for the ceremony eyed this young man with great skepticism. The Duke of Urbino was the youngest man to ever be a supreme commander of his holiness's armies. But he was no savant in the art of war. Hmm. He had not built a reputation for being a precocious young warrior. Thus far in his young life, the Duke of Urbino's primary accomplishment was being born the nephew of the Pope. With war on the horizon, it was remarkable that the Pope would place the safety of his realm into the hands of such an inexperienced youth. Actually, it was beyond remarkable. Insane was probably closer to the mark. Among the leaders that came to see the transfer of the baton to the Duke of Urbino was John Paul Bayoni. He had fought alongside Hugo Popoli against the Bentivoglio guerrillas in the countryside beyond Bologna. Together they had destroyed villages that gave food and shelter to the Bentivoglio. Bayoni wanted Hugo Popoli to join his company of men-at-arms. War was coming, and a man like Hugo was going to need an, a unit. Hugo wanted to join Bayoni's outfit, but Alidosi would allow no such thing. He wanted Hugo to join the infantry company of the Bolognese peasant-turned-captain Melchiori Ramazzotto, known as the priest. Serving under a peasant would greatly diminish Popoli's prestige in Bologna. And besides, Alidosi could count on the priest to make sure Hugo Popoli was killed. The Pope and the Cardinal were not idiots. They were both aware that many of the condottieri considered the Duke of Urbino to be grossly unqualified. To dispel their concerns, and to demonstrate the Pope's complete faith in his nephew, Cardinal Alidosi hosted a special dinner in Bologna. The Captain General was the guest of honor. He was received by some of the most important Bolognese warriors, including Hugo Popoli. Alidosi held the dinner at the newly constructed Citadel of Bologna. Part of the tour would have been a demonstration of the cannons. The cardinal had managed to pack 24 of them into the citadel. A few were pointed at the ancient palace of the Popoli family, Hugo's home, just a few hundred yards away from the citadel. Alidosi would have certainly joked about just waiting for the chance to use the cannons. Alidosi would have made Hugo Popoli the butt of many jokes. It was a time-worn way for a man of the cloth to undermine the honor of a swordsman. Besides, he knew Popoli would have no choice but to eat his pride. Hugo was on thin ice, and Alidosi was just waiting to drop a boulder on it. Naturally, we don't know who said what at this dinner in the Citadel. 
but we can be sure of what the main topic of conversation was. It was the most serene republic of Venice, La Serenissima. The merchants of Venice had built a nice little empire on the Italian mainland, a profitable little empire. Now France and Germany were going to take a big bite out of it. But what was the position of his holiness, the Pope? He had legitimate claims to some of this empire. Venice was squatting on five cities in the Romagna, cities that belonged to Rome, cities that even Venice called the Pope's cities. But would the Pope really throw in his lot with France and make them even stronger in Italy? Wouldn't that just endanger his own realm? Bit by bit, Alidosi informed the captains of the Pope's position. If Venice were to come to its senses, they were to give the Pope the lands he sought, the cities that were rightfully his, then the captains would be fighting against French knights and German lands connects. But if Venice was too proud to make the smart decision, then the Pope would be forced to side with the foreigners. His holiness had to have the Romagna, especially the city of Faenza. For whoever controlled Faenza had the power to recruit the famous Brizigeli pikemen of Romagna. The captains probably didn't care much about who they fought. They were not motivated by patriotism. They were professionals. War and killing was just their nine to five. Alidosi told them that now was the time to get their companies ready, to make sure their men were trained, and especially to make sure they had all the men they were being paid for. Condottieri in the Renaissance were notorious for collecting salaries for 100 men when they had only 50 under arms and pocketing the difference. The dinner with the Duke of Urbino seems to have served its purpose of instilling confidence in the Duke's leadership abilities. Of the many captains gathered, only one would change sides. This was the fox, a sly cavalryman whose defection to Venice would have a decisive impact on the upcoming war. We will hear a lot more about him later. As the men broke bread in Bologna, the powers of Europe were in a conference in the French town of Cambrai. They pretended to seek a resolution to the tensions that were in Italy. But the real purpose of the conference was to build an alliance against Venice. In secret meetings, the men at the conference haggled over the territories of Venice like butchers arguing over the beef in a carcass. The Serene Republic even had a representative at Camp Rai. He noted to the Venetian Senate that there were a number of secret meetings, meetings Venice was never invited to. It was a bit like being invited to a feast with a bunch of cannibals and finding out you were the entree. In December of 1508, the various powers inked out a treaty to completely divide the territories of Venice. The most serene Republic of Venice was now facing all the powers of Europe without a single ally in their corner. Even far-off England and Scotland allied themselves together against Venice. And those two countries hated each other so much they would not have allied themselves against Satan. Venice was about to become a whole lot less serene. Handing over the cities of Romagna would not only remove the Pope from the list of the Serenissima's enemies, but likely give them a helpful ally. But Venice was a republic of merchants, and it was a poor merchant indeed that gave away valuable commodities for free.
In November of 1508, Cardinal Aladosi left Bologna for Rome to help the Pope work through the international situation. This gave Hugo Popoli free reign to join the company of John Paul Bayoni. Some 40 miles away in Ferrara, Guido Rangoni was also packing his bags. The Pope had just renewed Guido's excommunication, and now the Duke of Ferrara wanted Guido gone. There was only one place left in Italy for an excommunicated swordsman. He would enter Venetian service, probably as just a common man in arms, a man with a lance and an uncertain future. Guido tried to get the Venetians to also take on the Bentavoglio as condottieri, but Venice didn't want to anger the Pope. They were gradually moving towards trying to ally with the Pope. In March of 1509, the Venetian Senate finally agreed to give the Pope his wish. He could have Faenza, along with the rest of Romagna. But they were a day late and a ducat short. Pope Julius had joined the alliance against Venice. Once again, Guido Rangoni and Hugo Popoli found themselves on opposite sides of a war. The war would be known to history as the War of the League of Cambrai, a conflict that would shake Renaissance Italy to its very knees. Once there were buds on the roses and grass in the fields, the armies started to march. They came at Venice from three different sides. The German emperor made his way slowly in from the north. The Germans of the Renaissance were not great soldiers. You couldn't fault their courage, but their armies oozed along like molasses, slowed by amateurism and ill-discipline. The Venetians considered them the least threatening force that they faced. To the south of Venice lay the army of the Duke of Urbino, spearheaded by Popoli and the other men-at-arms of Bayoni's company. They were backed by Spanish infantry, by Bolognese mountain men, and levies gathered from the lands of the Pope. They were already moving north toward Faenza. The young Duke was going to prove his doubters wrong. He counted on the assistance of Cardinal Aladosi, who was now back in Bologna once again. There the Cardinal spun his webs of conspiracy. The greatest threat to La Serenissima, though, was the army of the King of France. It was some 30,000 strong, and it was filled with professionals. The Venetians resolved to defeat this first enemy and concentrated almost all of their best troops against the French army. The only hope for Venice, the only hope at all, was to bring the French to battle quickly and then win a decisive victory against them. The Venetians may have been outnumbered. They were certainly outgunned, but they still had the best spies in Europe. As he marched toward Faenza, John Paul Bayoni almost managed to get a Venetian trader to betray his people and open the gates to one of their cities. Well, almost. The Venetians caught wind of that plot and the would-be trader ended his days swinging to and fro on the end of a rope. When Aladosi set up a similar plot to open the gates of Faenza, the Venetians discovered that one too. The Venetian commander of Faenza was a hell-for-leather condottieri known as Manfroni. He had that trader hanged in public along with his son. Venetian intelligence guaranteed there would be no betrayal of their cities. 
the enemy would have to take them the old-fashioned way, with guts and with gunpowder. The Pope's army had firepower in spades. They had dozens of cannons in their siege train, including 30 of the bronze cannons from Ferrara, the finest in Europe, if not the whole world. But the cities of Venice were defended by fortifications, backed by stout-hearted warriors who hated the Pope. In this battle of masonry versus cannon, it wasn't clear yet who held the upper hand. The goal of the Duke's campaign was to have the power to recruit the Brizzighelli Infantry of Romagna. And, and this is just as important, to cut off Venice from the supply of more of these famous pikemen. But before taking Fienza, he needed to capture the great fortress of Brizzighella. And yes, as you can imagine, this fortress was where the Brizzighella came from and where they took their name. Based on future events, we can be pretty sure it was here, in the fight for Brizzighella, that Hugo Popoli distinguished himself. The great fortress of Brizzighella stood about seven miles from the city of Faenza. The commander of that city, Manfroni, the Venetian, was not the type of man to stay hiding behind walls. When he recognized that the papal army was coming for Brizzighella, he leapt to the attack and took hundreds of infantry and men-at-arms with him. The country between Faenza and Brizighella is a wooded land. It is broken by hills. It is perfect territory for an ambush. Manfroni hurried through this land, leading his troops toward Brizighella. Manfroni was a lead from the saddle type of commander, so you just know that he was at the head of the column going toward the fortress. And he was just a mile or two beyond the walls when Hugo Popoli and the rest of the men-at-arms under Bayoni's command decided that it was time to ruin Manfroni's whole day. Once Manfroni was close enough to spring their trap, Hugo and the rest of the boys leveled their lances and charged. Manfroni's troops never had a chance. In the chaotic fight that developed, Bayoni's boys caught Manfroni. They cut him down from his horse. It may have been Popoli himself that did it. This, we just can't know. But it was a decisive moment that convinced Manfroni that it was time to cut bait and head all out for the fortress. And that's when things got out of control. Manfroni was making a beeline for Brizighella. The gates of the fortress were wide open so that his force could retreat into the safety of its walls. But Hugo Popoli stayed on Manfroni like a deer tick. And when Manfroni rode into Brizighella, Popoli was with him, and he was not alone. Many of Bayoni's boys mixed in with Manfroni's command, and they all rode into the fortress. They must have seized a gate or jammed the mechanism controlling it because the fortress of Brizighella couldn't close that door. There was a desperate contest for this gate. There was a desperate sword fight for this gate. But the Duke of Urbino hurried in reinforcements. Outnumbered, Manfroni and the garrison had no choice but to retreat into the citadel. Then it was time for the cannons to have their fun. The very first shot penetrated through the wall, and it sent sparks into the citadel's magazine. The powder exploded and destroyed all of one wall. A massive hole now stood gaping in the citadel. The troops of the Pope charged into it. Three times the desperate survivors of the garrison repelled attacks through the breach, but on the fourth, the Pope's men carried the citadel. Manfroni himself surrendered to one of Aladosi's condottieri, Sassatello the dog. Ducats would soon be raining down on the heavens on him. With the commander of the city in chains, things were looking very bleak indeed for Faenza. 
But the Venetians still had another card to play in this game, a Bolognese card, the Bentavoglio card. Hannibal and Hermes Bentivoglio had stayed in contact with Bologna while they were on the run. And as he dodged headhunters, Hannibal had written letters to friends in the city. He told them of his love for Bologna. And he professed a deep desire to end this old family feud with Lucius Malvezzi. His messages found many eager ears. Alidosius Citadel had run roughshod over the Bolognese. He had removed their last vestige of liberty. They were no longer citizens. They were subjects. Hannibal tried to interest Venice in backing a mission on Bologna, but the Senate demurred. But then the Bentivoglio received interesting information. Their friends in the city told them Cardinal Alidosi was planning to go to Milan to talk with the king on behalf of the pope. It would be the perfect time to attack Bologna. Their friends could seize one of Bologna's twelve gates and open it for the Bentivoglio, and the Bentivoglio could ride in and seize the city. The Bentivoglio told Venice that they could find the necessary men for the job, that there were many that would rally to their red and gold banner. They were sure that this time they could take Bologna. They just needed money and contracts from the Venetians to become condottieri of La Serenissima. The Bolognese wouldn't rally to their cause unless they knew they would be protected by Venice. The Venetian Senate debated this overnight. This was a tough decision for them. If the Bentivoglio could seize Bologna, that would put an immediate stop to the Duke's campaign against Faenza. And then Venice would have an ally, a client even, in the richest and largest city between Venice and Milan. In a split vote, they gave the green light to the Bentivoglio brothers. As condottieri of Venice, they could have contracts for 500 light cavalry and 2,000 infantry. They could also have Guido Rangoni. The vote was probably split because the Venetians were not sure the Bentivoglio could act quickly enough to attack Bologna. The Bentivoglio had to build an army, and that took time. Hannibal reassured them that he could put a credible force together in just two weeks. It was not much time to build an army, but time was something neither Venice nor the Bentivoglio could afford. Rangoni and the Bentivoglio brothers launched into the task like whirlwinds. They built up a camp near Faenza, and they started to recruit as fast as they could manage. don't know exactly where their camp was located, but with the information we do have, we can say it was most likely outside the little town of Certignola. The brother's great-grandfather was the town's most famous son, a fearless condottieri known as Sforza. People who study the Renaissance will recognize this name immediately, and yes, their great-grandfather was the founder of the famous Sforza dynasty. The brothers had many cousins in the neighborhood. Some would have joined their force. Others would have just kept them apprised of goings-on in the area, and especially the approach of hostile forces. Since their camp was away from the main Venetian fortifications, and kind of out on its own, the Bentivoglio would have depended on that intelligence to remain secure as they grew their little army. 
They should have been in danger of being attacked by Popoli and the rest of the Pope's army, but fortune cast a rare smile upon the Bentivoglio. The Pope's army was a cobbled-together mishmash of ill-disciplined troops from all over, a powder keg. The seizure of Bizagilla lit a match. The Spanish infantry were furious because they lost out on the ransom for Manfroni, the Venetian commander. A disagreement with some of the Italian troops over loot led to a small fight between the Bolognese troops and the Spaniards. This fight then threatened to turn into a full-scale battle, a battle that would tear apart the Pope's army from the inside. The leaders of the army seemed to have kept it from getting too far out of hand. Hugo Popoli would have been of great assistance to the Duke here because the Popoli name commanded great respect among the Bolognese, both in the mountains and in the city, and no one doubted Hugo's willingness to fight. To keep the Pope's men busy, Hermes Bentivoglio launched raids deep into papal territory. He led small groups of light cavalry. They rode fast. They hit hard. When not engaged in these raids, Hermes tried to recruit infantry in Faenza. That was a city where the Pope had exiled many Bentivoglio sympathizers in the past. He found much enthusiasm, but fewer recruits as Venice was slow in providing the promised money and infantry would only sign up if they got coin that they could bite into. Cavalrymen were easier to find. Many would join the Bentivoglio cause on the promise of pay. Venetian boats brought these Bentivoglio supporters from throughout the lands of the Serene Republic. Hannibal worked on getting more money from Venice, which came to him in dribs and in drabs. When not getting money, Hannibal and Guido were assembling their men into companies and training them to make sure their skills were sharp. It was just as they had done when Guido had joined the army of Bologna after his much-beloved father died, before the Pope had ruined it all. The Venetians were pleased with the energy of these Bentivoglio. Venice always had a problem with sluggardly condottieri and could not help but admire the efficiency and the tenacity of these Bentivoglio. The army grew rapidly in size and in quality. Alidosi already sent a baggage train ahead of him to Milan, and now... He was set to leave in a day or two. Hannibal just had to make the final arrangements with his allies to open one of the gates of the city. His friends needed money. They needed to meet with him personally to make the final arrangements. Hannibal agreed. He was so close to Bologna now he could taste it. There was just one tiny hitch with the Bentivoglio plan. Alidosi wasn't leaving Bologna. Alidosi never intended to leave Bologna. Hannibal's friends in the city had long since been turned by Alidosi. His supposed trip to Milan was just a ruse to draw out the Bentivoglio. Hannibal's head was going to make one hell of a gift for the Pope. Alidosi gave the job of capturing Hannibal to his brother-in-law, a man born with the unfortunate name of Guido Vagina. And just as you would expect from a man born to this sobriquet, his single mission in life was to prove that he was no pussy. We will refer to him by the name he preferred to go by, Guido the Great. Building an army has always been a pain in the ass. Building up an army in two weeks is far more of a pain. You might think a Renaissance army was just a bunch of warriors with swords and horses that just rode off to a big battle one day without another thought. Nothing could be farther from the truth. 
The men needed bread, meat, and wine. The knights' horses needed oats and hay. The infantry always wanted more spear shafts, more spearheads. They always wanted more breastplates and cuirasses. The oxen that pulled their carts always needed more hay. The mounted crossbowmen never had enough quarrels, or if they did, they needed a greater variety of bolt heads. Their horses never had enough hay. But mostly armies needed money, gobs and gobs of money. To see to all of these supplies, Hannibal needed to go back and forth between camp and the port of Ravenna where his supplies came in and where the Venetian officials counted their beans. Hannibal traveled with just a small entourage, probably no more than two dozen men. Alidosi's spies informed him that Hannibal was going back and forth between the camp near Certignola and the port, and he alerted his brother-in-law. Guido the Great had some 150 cavalry available for this job. There was a good area to lay an ambush in wetlands between the port and the camp. Guido the Great seems to have moved through the lands of the Duke of Ferrara to reach the desired spot for an ambush. He managed to not be seen. None of the Bentavoyo's cousins in the area seems to have spotted his force at all. With 4,000 ducats on the line, Guido the Great threatened the lives of any of his troops who made noise and any country folk who might have thought they could warn the Bentavoyo. And then one fine day in early May of 1509, Hannibal Bentavoyo came riding along and stumbled into the Alidosi's carefully woven spiderweb. Guido the Great launched his men at Hannibal and his retinue. Bentavoyo and his men were trapped. After three years on the run, with half of Italy hunting for him, Hannibal had finally been caught by one of the Pope's men. And Guido the Great would be the man of the hour. People would no longer even dare to make fun of his name. There was just one problem. Hannibal Bentavoglio was described by one contemporary as particularly dexterous and strong. He was known for his great skill in arms and as a valiant captain. He was one of the best jousters in Italy and one of the best swordsmen too. In short, they had laid a web to catch him. They had caught him, but they had not caught a fly. They had caught one mean hornet and he was determined to break through the web. Hannibal and his command wheeled about on their mounts to ride full tilt back toward Ravenna. Part of Guido the Great's force was on the road blocking them. The men were mostly armed with swords and they charged directly at Guido's men to break through this wall. A short, sharp, and nasty little fight ensued. Horses whinnied and fell over. Men fell bleeding to the ground. And that ugly little knot of warriors attacks came in from in front, and from behind, and from left, and from right. Hannibal gave about with his sword like a bladed wheel, leaving sliced faces and ruined sword hands as it spun. A bit of daylight opened before him, a rupture in the knot of men that surrounded him. Hannibal hurtled toward it like a fullback punching through a defensive line. He cut away through the enemy formation, then he and the few men of his that survived rode back to Ravenna, a cloud of dust following behind. Guido the Great's men leaped to pursue them, but no regular cavalryman had a horse like those ridden by a lord and his retinue. Guido the Great had let Hannibal get away. Sadly for him, people would continue to mock his name. They would only call him the Great with a sharp knife of irony in their voice. Hannibal Bentivoglio did not escape unscathed. He was wounded in this little fracas but it did little to slow him down. He remained in Ravenna long enough to be patched up, and then he went back to the Bentavoglio camp. Morale in the little Bentavoglio force soared as stories spread of Hannibal's fearlessness 
in the face of a superior force. They were as primed as could be to retake Bologna. His brother even came up with a war cry for the Bentavoglio force. Translated literally, it was something like, take what they've done to you and give it back to them double. But what they really meant was, payback is a bitch. Hannibal was suspicious over the carefully planned ambush. He sensed something was foul. Venetian spies confirmed that the whole thing was a trap, that Alidosi was not going to Milan and likely never had planned to go. He had tricked the Bentavoglio, and Hannibal had been lucky to escape with his life. A sensible course of action was to retreat. But Hannibal was never sensible when it came to returning to Bologna. He had to go back and retake Bologna. He had to free it from the Pope. He just couldn't figure out yet how to get past those walls. The Duke's campaign against Venice now laid its crosshairs on the castle of Rusi. This fortress controlled the road between Faenza and the port of Ravenna. There was no need to capture the city of Faenza directly, as it turned out, because the Duke could just control Ravenna, control access from the sea, and Faenza would have to fold like a cheap tent. Rusi could feel this coming, and his garrison made preparations for a siege. They destroyed food in the countryside around it to deny that to the Duke's men. They raised buildings to deny them cover. But most importantly, they damaged some of the levees in the area. Rusi was in a lowland. It was reclaimed land that was prone to flooding. If the Duke's men wanted to fight, they would have to walk in mud. If they wanted a siege, they would have to live in mud. Hugo Popoli and the rest of Bayoni's boys put a stop to these preparations. They rode out toward Rusi and chased the garrison of infantry back into the safety of the castle walls. Then they began laying out the first of many camps for the siege. Infantry came and started their own camps. Then the pioneers, the peasants that would move mud and fill the moat, made their camps. And finally the artillery came. Reports from the garrison commander to Venice said that his men were in good spirit, that they were optimistic for success, that they were ready to fight. And who knows, that might have even been true. The camps of the papal army were a great muddy mess. Things improved a bit, though, when the captain general came to Rusi. Certainly, he brought it some style, with his beautiful tent standing above the mud and his fancy pennants flapping in the breeze. The duke sent a messenger forward with a trumpet into Rusi to demand the surrender of the castle. He warned them of the great force of cannons that he had coming. Rusi would be pulverized along with all of the men inside it. The commander refused. He was determined to hold on to the castle. To make sure the duke understood his point, the Venetian commander unleashed a cannonade at the duke's beautiful tents. The duke had imprudently placed his camp too near the castle. The custom of the time stated that a garrison's cannon should only shoot at other cannons or at attacking infantry, of course. The Duke of Urbino was not hurt by this salvo from Rusi, but it did kill five of his courtiers, five of his drinking buddies. This breach of etiquette infuriated the Duke. 
that men of note should be killed in such an ignominious way just was too much for him to bear, and he was determined to make them pay. Though Rusi was under siege, it was not surrounded. Messengers and men continued to come and to go from Rusi. The castle called upon Venice for reinforcements. The commander especially wanted soldiers from among the substantial force the Bentavoyo had assembled nearby. But the Bentavoyo wanted all their men for the upcoming attack on Bologna. To mollify the Venetians, they sent some infantry led by a half dozen of their best Bolognese men-at-arms. To further help the garrison, Hermes Bentavoyo launched a raid deep into the papal territory and seized a great number of cattle. He hoped to draw men and attention away from the enemy, but the Duke of Urbino was focused. They had destroyed his tents. They had killed his drinking buddies. So the Duke set his mind to shattering the walls of Rusi with his cannons, but his cannons didn't work against Rusi. The ground was so flat and muddy that the recoil of the cannons threw off any attempt at aiming them, and his army lacked suitable frames to serve as foundations for the cannons. He tried placing the cannons closer to the castle to make up for the lack of accuracy. Rusi managed to kill a lot of gunners that way. So the duke put his many pioneers to work. He ordered the erection of a large embankment. He hoped that the presence of mounds of dirt would give the gun something to anchor into. It seems to have taken about a week, and the diggers were exposed to fire from the castle. But it did work, and soon the gunners of the duke were turning the walls of the castle into rubble from a safe distance. As he extended the embankment around Rusi, the duke found he was able to fire at it from three sides, Rusi cried out for reinforcements and relief, but Venetian spies sent to investigate came back with bad news. The fortress was doomed. Any new troops sent would either be killed or surrendered. Rusi's days were numbered. But there was a ray of sunshine in the Venetian cause. Hermes Bentavoglio found supporters in Bologna that would open the gate for the Bentavoglio. And once the Bentavoglio were back in Bologna, the Duke of Urbino would have to forget about Rusi. He would have to forget about Ravenna and Faenza. He would have to go back to retake Bologna. The Bentavoglio were ready to go. They would attack Bologna in three days when their friend was ready to open the gate. The plan was to retake Bologna on the 16th of May. Of course, the Bentavoglio were not stupid. They knew it might be a trap. They knew this might be just another one of Alidosi's plots. It could simply put the heads of Hannibal and Hermes and Guido Rangoni on a spike. But they had to try. Rusi had to just hold on for three more days. As the old saying goes, man plans and God laughs. The Bentavoglio were ready to go on the 16th of May. However, there would be no opening of a gate into Bologna. Throughout Italy, messengers were bringing news of a terrible defeat suffered by Venice. You will recall that La Serenissima had concentrated all their best troops against France. Well, at a village called Agnadello, they had been routed. Now, routed does not quite describe just how badly they had been beat. It was the greatest military disaster ever suffered by Venice. Fully half of the Venetian army was gone. The commanders were in chains and the regular troops were fertilizing the fields. 
The other half of the army was on the run, and most of its soldiers were rethinking their career choices and rethinking them fast. The Venetian army was shrinking by the mile. Rumors spread faster than wildfire that there no longer was a Venetian army. Hannibal Bentivoglio realized there was no longer a hope of retaking Bologna. Rusi would fall for certain. The Bentivoglio destroyed their camp and marched back to Ravenna on the double. To combat the French invasion, the Venetians had stripped their garrisons to the bone and left their cities almost naked. Ravenna did not have much of a garrison at all. Its walls were weak, and the enemy was coming. Ravenna was captured. It just didn't know it yet. Hannibal knew what he had to do. The Bentivoglio and the Bolognese would have to leave. Hannibal sent Hermes to Faenza to get as many Bolognese out of that city as possible before it too fell. Then he set about arranging shipping back to Venice for himself and as many of his soldiers as he could manage. The commander of the Ravenna garrison wished him to stay, but Bentivoglio was sure that the city would not survive an assault by the Pope's army. If Venice was going to survive, it would need to fight for the mainland opposite the floating city. It would have to have an army, and the core of any army is this body of skilled, motivated, and well-trained troops, troops like those that the Bentivoglio had. To the authorities in Venice, the Bentivoglio force, an army approved by their senate almost as an afterthought, was now the second largest army under Venetian control, and if desertions continued with their other force, the Bentivoglio army would soon be the largest. The commander of Ravenna's garrison wanted the senate to keep Hannibal Bentivoglio in Ravenna, but the Senate decided to bring him back to Venice. They also let him get as many of his troops out of Ravenna as possible. Venice was going to need them. Much of the force that Bentivoglio raised would travel by sea to the mainland of Venice, where they were already planning to build a new army. It was particularly important for the most experienced soldiers and captains to come and help rebuild a new Venetian army. Venice would come to have great respect for the effectiveness of the Bentivoglio's training of infantry captains. At the time of Agnadello, none of their captains was from Bologna. Within a few years, Da Bologna, or from Bologna, would become one of the most common surnames of their infantry captains, and Bologna itself a preferred place to recruit troops. Hannibal's work was so impressive that in later years, the Generalissimo of the Venetian army would recommend Hannibal to become the supreme infantry commander of the whole Venetian army. But again, ours is a tale of Guido Rangoni and Hugo Popoli, so to these two gentlemen we shall return. Much of Guido Rangoni's activity in this episode has revolved around helping his uncles, but now he stepped from the wings and onto the stage. To Guido Rangoni would fall the most difficult of all the jobs. He would be responsible for the Bolognese people that were not soldiers, that were not a priority to ship, that the Venetians didn't really want. His mission would be to get them to safety, and the map of northern Italy was changing by the hour. They were about 3,000 in all, men, women, and children. There were a few soldiers with the group, but most were back defending Ravenna or on their way to Venice. Guido worked out a deal with the opposing army to allow them to leave, provided they lay down their weapons and were thus allowed safe passage. Not knowing where to go exactly, Guido sent messengers to the Duke of Ferrara, who had kept the Bentivoglio safe after they had been forced out of Bologna, asking for passage through his lands. And so this human convoy of thousands, mostly unarmed, made their way through the countryside, hoping for succor in Ferrara. Then the exiles were set upon in the territory of Ferrara by marauders from the Pope's army outside of Ravenna. Being unarmed, they were robbed, and who knows what else happened. 
They were left destitute and alone. Needless to say, the Duke of Ferrara, an ally of the Pope, did nothing to help them. It was enough to drive any man to despair. A lesser man might have been tempted to flee this responsibility, but betrayal was not in Rangoni's character. Somewhere on the road, he had heard tell that there was a new count in Padua, a man who was making deals with other local lords, and Rangoni aimed his people in that direction, and he prayed. Now, before we find out what happens next with Guido and Hugo, and things are going to get just even stranger with these two, we're going to have to learn about a guy who was a real rags-to-riches kind of character. During the Renaissance, the most unlikely of men could rise suddenly to unbelievable heights, and nobody demonstrates this better than Leonardo Trissino. If you'd seen him a year or two before the War of the League of Cambrai, you would have figured this guy would not amount to much. He was from Vicenza one of the many cities under Venetian control. It was an unimportant city between two important places, Verona and Padua. He was rash and impulsive, and he was, what we would say, was on the highway to nowhere. He managed to squander his meager inheritance at a young age. Then he murdered a lawyer in Vicenza. The city of Vicenza gave him his walking papers, and he had to count himself lucky to escape the hangman. Though he was broke, though he was penniless, his family connections got him a place at the court of the German emperor. He was a likable and impulsive fellow, and his murder wasn't really held against him. I mean, it was just a lawyer after all. Then Trissino somehow finagled an introduction to the emperor. It was his big shot, and he made it. The emperor cottoned to Trissino, and the men became close hunting buddies. Once war with Venice started, Trissino returned to Italy with a small company of infantrymen. And after Venice's army was eviscerated at Ignatello, citizens of Vicenza begged Trissino to return to Vicenza and take control of town, which he did. He did that in the name of the emperor. And then he figured, what the heck, why not try to add to his domain? And here's the crazy thing. The whole world had been turned so far upside down that no one stopped him. He grabbed a few ambitious young noblemen in Vicenza and he went off to the city of Verona, conquered that town. For a good measure, he headed over to Padua as well. He took that town, too. All told, Trissino ended up ruling over lands containing nearly half a million subjects, backed by nothing more than 75 guys with spears and a few ambitious noblemen. He ruled more territory and more people than just about any other lord in northern Italy. Not bad for a man who was dead broke, with no prospects just a year or two before. The emperor made Trissino an imperial count. Of the three cities under his rule, Trissino chose to build his court in the city of Padua, which was the most strategically placed of the three. Padua controlled the southern roads to Venice. No one could besiege the city of Venice itself without control of Padua. To remove vestiges of Venice's former rule, he had the famous Lions of St. Mark torn down from public buildings and from city squares for Venice. This is very much adding insult to injury, and they would not soon forget it. To give his rule a broad foundation, Trissino received many Italian lords from throughout the territory. He accepted their new loyalty to the emperor and confirmed them in their lands and in their privileges. 
one of these Italian lords, was Guido Rangoni, who came to Padua with thousands of destitute Bolognese exiles. Guido was the ancestral lord of a castle in the lands being claimed by the emperor. This represented the last of his land holdings, the last of his inheritance. Guido swore loyalty to the emperor, and Trasino confirmed Rangoni in his possessions. Once that business was done, Rangoni left Padua. It's not known what happened to the Bolognese that came with him. A few followed Rangoni to his castle, for sure. Many stayed in Padua. Like Bologna, Padua was a university town. Like Cambridge, it was a university formed by disgruntled academics from an older, well-established university, the University of Bologna in this case. It was considered the second best university in Italy, though we can be sure the people of Padua had a slightly different take on that. Many Bolognese would have had friends and relatives in Padua and so would have found a decent new life there under the gentle rule of Leonardo Trasino. It had been a strange ride to the top for Trasino, a strange and improbable ride. And at the summit, everything looked like roses as far as the eyes could see. But as he was soon to discover, easy come, easy go. Whew. To tell the story of Guido Rangoni and Hugo Popoli, and to tell it to the best of our ability, we've had to throw a lot of names at you. Especially... Names of places. You've heard about Faenza, the port of Ravenna, Bologna, of course, the fortresses at Rusi and Brisighella, even the little town of Certignola, home of the Sforza dynasty, Ferrara too. To that we've added the cities of the imperial count Leonardo Trasino, wealthy Verona, small Vicenza, and strategic Padua. If you've managed to keep half of these names straight, then take a bow, unless you're Italian. Now we have to beg your leave to add one more to the list of places. Treviso. It was just about the only city on the Italian mainland that remained faithful to Venice. If the Republic of Venice was a castle, then the city on the lagoon was the keep. And if the city on the lagoon was the keep, then Treviso was one of the gates to the inner bailey, the courtyard around the keep. The Republic had to hold on to Treviso at all costs. The Venetians sent an enterprising friar to see to improving the defenses. And to buy time for the work to take hold, they sent one of their top leaders to delay the enemy, Lucius Malvezzi. You might remember him as the commander of Bologna when Guido Rangoni and the Bentivoglio tried to free the city from the Pope. The one who made sure the gates were not just shut, but barricaded. The one too clever to fall for the Bentivoglio's trap to come out of the city. The one who tried to stop the destruction of the Palazzo Bentivoglio. He had been in Venetian service, had survived Agnadello, and now found himself among the top ranks of the Venetian army. Venice was getting Treviso ready to face the emperor as fast as they could. They had to destroy houses so there was nowhere to hide from their cannons. They were likewise strengthening the walls to resist the massive cannons they expected the emperor to bring against them. And to protect Treviso against surprise attacks from the north, the Venetians sent Malvezzi to guard a castle controlling the pass. That put him a mere five miles away from Guido Rangoni. The two men had a lot to talk about. The Venetians wanted Guido Rangoni back in their service, but Rangoni was sitting out the fight. He'd been on the losing side of a battle enough times and was now down to his last castle. Malvezzi was looking to augment his personal command. He was specifically seeking to add 
light cavalry, the kind of troops Guido happened to be training at the time. He and Guido had a lot in common in the past. Not only had they both been raised in Bologna, but they had even grown up in the same house. They may have even slept in the same room. And they both despised Pope Julius and his cancer of a minister, Cardinal Francesco Alidosi. Now it's possible they never did talk. We have no record of them having a conversation at the time. But based on future events, it seems far more likely that Malvezzi asked for Guido to come see him and that Guido assented. Guido was in a bizarre position. The Republic of Venice still controlled the area around Guido's castle, but everyone expected the emperor to come along and kick out the Venetians at any time. Guido's uncles were in Venice, and the soldiers he had trained were also in Venetian service, but he was sworn to the emperor now. We can only guess how the conversation went exactly. But after the preliminaries, Malvezzi would have turned the conversation round to Rangoni's exodus from Ravenna, the exodus where he had led thousands of people to safety, Bolognese, people that Lucius knew, people he was glad Guido had kept alive. We don't know exactly what was said, but we can guess the conversation went something like this. I had many friends under your protection. So, I'm going to do you a favor, Count Guido. I'm going to give you a chance to correct a terrible mistake. And what terrible mistake is that, Lord Lucius? You put your money in the wrong horse. Venice is going to win. The Venice who lost their whole army at Agnadello, practically? The very same. The Venice who's lost almost every city on the mainland? That one. Yes. The Venice who's facing armies from France, Germany, and Rome and getting their asses kicked by every one of them? That's the one. Mm, that's not how I see it. French knights and German lands connects are going to be feasting in St. Mark's Square if Venice doesn't sue for peace soon. Nobody can invade Venice without control of Treviso and Padua. Mm, last I checked, Padua belonged to the enemies of Venice, my so-called friends. Padua won't remain in German hands for long. The fates of great nations like Venice are not ruined by men like Leonardo Trasino. <laughs> Padua changing hands. That would change the situation. And once Venice is victorious... If Venice is victorious, they're gonna... No, 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 no. No, no, Count Guido. It's when Venice is victorious. They'll remember who stuck by them and who abandoned them. So I'm gonna put in a good word for you with the Venetians. I'll tell them that you had to change sides to protect your castle. They won't like it. <laughs> I mean, they won't like it at all. But once I tell them you joined my outfit, you know, it'll just be water under the Rialto. Hmm. Why would I want to serve under you? Venice would give me my own contract. Because, Count Guido, I take care of my own men. And I have pull with the Signoria. Venice is going to be looking to cut a deal with the Pope sooner or later. I can make sure that the Bentivoglio aren't a part of that deal. I'll have to think about that. Now, I won't mention any of this Padua business to my so-called friends, either. Best to keep this conversation between you and me. Hugo Popoli was soon to find himself at his own crossroads. The War of the League of Cambrai was going as well for Hugo Popoli as it was going badly for Guido Rangoni. In relatively short order, the Pope's troops conquered all the Venetian strongholds in the Romagna. A large part of that was due to Hugo Popoli's dash into the gates of Brizighella. His reputation now was silver bright. Once the last of the Venetian strongholds in the Romagna fell... It was time for the victory lap. The Duke dismissed the infantry of the papal army and the men-at-arms of the companies were sent back to their homes. 
Naturally, Hugo Papoli returned to Bologna. With his reputation in the ascendant, he was an invaluable ally for the cardinal against the partisans of the Bentivoglio. Cardinal Alidosi even seemed to trust Hugo Papoli. Now, both the cardinal and his holiness certainly could have had no cause to doubt Hugo's loyalty to Rome. Alidosi soon presented an interesting offer to Hugo Papoli. His commander, John Pabaioni, had spoken well of Papoli's leadership. Papoli was brave, and he had a strong reputation amongst the Bolognese. It was time for Hugo Papoli to start his own company, and that would be to the benefit of Bologna to have their own captain to rally round. He had spoken to His Holiness about starting Hugo with a small contract for about 25 lances once the next conflict arose, as it inevitably would. Was Hugo interested? even if it meant he had to leave Bologna? Of course he was. Getting your own condotta, or contract, was the ticket to the big time. Before giving his blessing to the enterprise, His Holiness wished to meet Hugo Papoli in person. Aladosi would take care of the paperwork. He would get the necessary monies. He promised to have everything ready for Hugo when he returned from Rome. On his journey south to Rome, Papoli would have stopped in at Perugia, where John Paul Baglioni was entertaining the Duke of Urbino. He would have told him about his good news and thanked him for the chance of serving under him. If he noticed a black look from the Duke of Urbino, Hugo Papoli would have just thought the Duke was mad that one of his own followers was not getting the condotta. Hugo would have been greeted by representatives from the Pope outside of Rome and then led into the city. Rome in the early 1500s was not the beautiful city that it is today, nor was it the grand city of antiquity? It was, as one contemporary put it, the closest place to hell on earth. Though as large as Bologna or Florence, it produced nothing. It had no university. The people of the city mostly lived off the rich cardinals in town or eked out a living ripping off pilgrims. Every summer, fever swept away the old. In such a city, crime was naturally rampant. On the following day, Hugo had a meeting with the Pope's secretary to set a time to meet His Holiness. As Hugo traveled from a friend's home to the Pope's palace, he and his retainers were met by some of the Pope's men sent to escort them through the city. It was a dangerous town. At an invisible signal, the Pope's men crowded in against Hugo, and they took his sword. Then they knocked him off his mount into the ground, where footmen seized him. They killed Hugo's retainers without a moment's hesitation. Hugo struggled mightily, but they were one man to a limb against him. As they clapped him in chains, he could only shout in frustrated rage, Damn you, Alidosi! Like so many visitors to the Eternal City, Papoli found himself being taken to the Castel Sant'Angelo, the Pope's private fortress, also the Pope's private prison. Guests to the Hotel de Sant'Angelo had a nasty habit of being fished out of the nearby Tiber River. He would have tried to escape his chains, but it would have been fruitless. He may have asked his crime and just caught a kick in response. Then, like many a prisoner before him, Papoli would have resigned himself to waiting and discovering whether His Holiness planned to execute him. The arrest of Hugo Papoli passed unnoticed, but that was unsurprising. It was small beer during a strange war that was about to get a whole lot stranger.
Back in the city of Padua, the imperial count Leonardo Tresino was discovering that conquering his countrymen was far easier than ruling them. When Padua had been part of Venice, the Pope had excommunicated the entire city. After Tresino liberated Padua, the excommunication was lifted. Church services resumed to great joy. Everyone was happy in the city. That honeymoon lasted about a day. There was a shortage of troops to guard the city and maintain order. The people of Padua begged the count to provide them with more soldiers to maintain the peace. Tresino did get some more soldiers, more Landsknechts from the emperor. That should have pleased the Paduans, but it did not. The Landsknechts were German, and the people of Padua did not want any more Germans in their city. Some of the people openly dared his wrath and walked through the streets shouting, Marco, Marco, the traditional cry of the Venetians. Tresino found some of these to arrest, no doubt, but he could not arrest them all. It was a weak ruler indeed that feared words spoken against him in the open. But these were just annoyances compared to his big problem. The German emperor was at war with Venice. That meant Leonardo Tresino was at war with Venice. But the Venetians were close by while the emperor was far away and oozing towards Padua. Worse still, the laws of economics were less flexible than the laws of men. Padua had been part of a trade network with Venice at its heart. That meant there was little work for the people in the city, which added to the discontent, and there was a shortage of food intensified by the many refugees from the countryside that came to Padua escaping the marching armies, hungry people who should have been out in the fields bringing in the wheat and the millet. Tresino needed trade with Venice while he also had to fight them. It was a sad and confusing state of affairs for the imperial count. War had disrupted the harvest. There seems to have been no starvation per se, but rampant hunger. Like much of Europe, the main source of animal protein for the common people of Padua came from the sea in the form of preserved fish. But Venice controlled the sea. And as the saying goes, he who commands the sea commands everything. Tresino did his part to be a good imperial vassal. He warned the condottieri of Venice that the emperor was going to take back their feasts if they did not abandon the republic. At the same time, he tried to do his part for his subjects by making contact with prominent Venetian merchants. He asked them to come trade in Padua once again. If they did, he hinted he could intercede with the king of France on their behalf. This was a marvel to the merchants of Venice. His request was so stupid, so ignorant of the situation, so asinine that they suspected a trap. Obviously, Leonardo Tresino was no great mind. But could he really be this stupid? Did he not understand the mood of Venice? The Republic had not lasted for 800 years by shrinking from a fight. Venice was not cowed by the loss of their mainland possessions. They were enraged. The merchants of Venice would have sooner sunk their own ships than sell a single jar of anchovies in Padua. They wanted Padua to suffer. Let them starve for pulling down the Lion of St. Mark. But there was one merchant among them who thought it wise to respond to Tresino in the affirmative, that thought it very much in the long-term interest of the Serenissima to resume trade with Padua. He was one of the greatest merchants 
ever to hail from the city on the lagoon. His name was Andre Gritti. He is important in the story of Guido and Hugo. Andre Gritti is one of those men who drove the course of history. So let's take a moment to know this fascinating character. Until the 1490s, he had been one of the many successful Venetian merchants in Constantinople, doing what they did, making money by day, chasing the ladies by night. Then the leader of the Venetians in Constantinople was arrested by the Ottoman Turks, accused of espionage, well, let's be honest, guilty of espionage. The Venetians in Constantinople needed a new leader, and Gritty became that man. And yeah, he started spying on the Ottoman Turks too. He too was caught. His head came within a hair's breadth of being separated from his shoulders, but the sultan was too fond of Gritty to kill him. So Gritty wound up in prison. When he was released four years later, he was penniless, a ruined man of 50 years. A lesser man would have taken to the bottle, but not Gritty. Where does a ruined man of 50 years seek his fortune? In politics, of course. Every major command in the Venetian army had a proveditor, a combination bean counter and civil affairs maestro. Gritty wangled one of these jobs. Even though he had no experience with military service, he excelled in the role and moved up within the ranks of the Venetian government. So when he said trade with Padua was a good idea, people listened. On July 17th, a caravan of three large wagons approached one of the gates of Padua, the gate called Cotalunga. The merchants with the caravan bore goods from Venice, and the Lanz connects at the gate had been told to watch out for them. July 17th was an important holy day for Venice, and the guards were to make the merchants feel welcome. The guards took a cursory look through the goods, and as everything appeared to be in order, they opened the gates for the merchants. The first two wagons crossed through the gate without issue, but strangely, the last wagon broke down right at the threshold of the gate. The German guards started swearing at the merchants as the gate was now blocked. Who knew what kind of hell they were going to catch for that? The Venetian merchants were flustered. The axle on the last wagon had broken just as it went through the gate. It was just the worst kind of luck. Luck had nothing to do with it, naturally. The Germans did not see the small group of riders approaching the city at a gallop, bearing the cross of St. Mark. Do you remember the fox from Bologna? He led this cavalry along with a white-haired old man, Andre Gritty, whose mane of white locks blew behind him. The German garrison of the city was small, too small, and only noticed them at the last minute. They started calling for their fellows below to close the gate, but the broken wagon blocked the gate. The German guards at the gate tried to heave the wagon aside, but it was too heavy for them. He called for help, but it was too late. The riders were upon him. The Landsknechts grabbed for their pikes. They shoved their points in the direction of the riders to keep them from going past and through the gate. A shower of crossbow bolts forced the Germans to shelter behind the wagons. More Germans were coming to the gate, but the leading riders, heavily armored men-at-arms, came down off their mounts and approached the gates. The Germans tried to stab the knights with their pikes, but the pikeheads could not penetrate their armor. The fox dispatched the two Lanzknechts with his sword and led the way into Padua. He motioned for the rest of the Venetians to follow him into the city. More Germans were at the Cotalunga Gate, as well as angry Padawans. The Germans attempted to hold the Cotalunga Gate. The Padawans loosed crossbow bolts and fired off their guns at the invaders. But the numbers were against them, and soon the defenders' nerves broke. They fled into the city. The Venetians, led by Andre Gritti and the Fox, moved to take control of Padua. 
they would not encounter much resistance. The garrison was quickly overwhelmed and Trasino captured. Within an hour or two, Gritty could say that Padua was secured for Venice, but as his men secured the city, the sacking of Padua commenced. It was the first of the Venetian cities to be reconquered, and so the focus of much of the Venetians' wrath. The victorious troops ran riot through the streets, especially going after the houses of those who had rebelled against Venice. People soon came from Venice itself to join in the sack, steal some things from Padua, and watch them suffer under the wrath of Venice. After they finished with the traitors, the Venetians went after the bankers and the moneylenders. Reports of the sack indicated that there was little bloodshed, and this was probably true among the Christians. A certain amount of sacking was deliberate terror inflicted to intimidate a nation's enemies, but a sack also allowed men to show their true colors. The enemy was prostrate before them, only compassion never reliable in wartime, stopped men from behaving in the worst possible ways. Many Italians in the Renaissance had an overriding hatred for the Jews that lived among them. The sources are largely silent on the horrors inflicted upon them in the sack of Padua, but stories of it would circulate among the Jewish communities of Italy and vengeance would not be long in coming. But more on that later. Gritty was not moved by compassion. He no doubt wished to see Padua suffer too, but there was business to take care of, important business. The enemy was going to be coming soon in overwhelming force. There was no time to waste, no effort to waste, no people to waste. Padua would be attacked by the combined forces of the enemy and Padua had to hold out if Venice was going to remain free and independent. Since the first French invasion of Italy some 15 years before, no city had been able to resist their army. Gritty not only had to face the French, but the armies of the Germans and the Pope too. He did not know it yet, but Andre Gritty and the Venetians were going to fight against the largest army on the peninsula in a thousand years. For almost all that time, walls held the advantage over armies. Italy was a fortified country, probably the most fortified country in Christendom. In the plains, castles dotted the fields were four or five miles apart. Hills held towers. Even monasteries and nunneries sometimes were fortified by walls. During the medieval period, the basic rule was the taller the wall, the better the wall. Of course, with cannons, the taller the wall, the bigger the target. Gritti made the controversial choice to reduce the height of the walls of Padua. He reckoned that a shorter wall would be a smaller target, that a shorter wall could be thicker, that a shorter wall would resist cannons. Padua also had cannons of its own. Gritti was going to use these to attack the enemy's gunners. To have clear shooting lanes, or fields of fire as they are called, Gritty ordered all buildings outside of the walls to be razed to the ground. Even the houses of God that blocked his fields of fire were torn down. Gritty did not just tear down buildings outside the city. There were many buildings in Padua built against the walls of Padua. These were torn down too. Again, 
If the enemy even breached the walls, his forces charging into the breach would not find a single wooden plank to hide behind. They would simply be sticking their heads into a nest of hornets. Gritty did not even plan to let it come to that, though. The most important thing was going to be keeping the enemy away from the walls. To do that, Gritty ordered construction on ravelins, miniature fortresses built outside the main defenses, as well as barriers that the enemy would have to cross before they could even approach the walls. Because Gritty was not going to retreat into the walls and wait for the enemy, he planned to make the enemy fight just to get their cannons within range. Gritty may not have meant attack at all costs in Venetians, but it might as well have. All the preparations in the world were not going to help Gritty without an army. He called for troops and Venice answered in spades. As an island... And as a commercial powerhouse, Venice was a naval power. They had a large force of sailors and ships, and they had no one to sink. So they sent the men of their fleet to the defense of Treviso. This allowed the professional soldiers already in Treviso, men like Lucius Malvezzi, to move south to the defense of Padua. A new Venetian army made of the survivors of Agnadello, as well as the many Bolognese that had fled Ravenna, was also going to come to Padua. To them were added companies of Venetian volunteers from the city itself, and Venice's special force of light cavalry, known as the Stradioti, who came from Greece and Albania. These were ideal troops for raiding. It was now decision time for Guido Rangoni. Just as Malvezzi had claimed, Venice was showing remarkable powers of recuperation, yet siding with the empire seemed like the safer bet. In the end, he brought his troops to fight under the Lion of St. Mark, the flag of Venice. Across the expanse of time, it is impossible to say exactly why Rangoni chose to switch to the Venetian side. He may have simply thought them more likely to win, though considering the odds at that time, this seems quite unlikely. Maybe he thought Lucius Malvezzi could keep Venice from selling out the Bentivoglio if they switched sides. Regardless of the reason, he saddled up and let the Venetians know he was coming back with his company. Once word spread that he was going to fight for Venice, many more Bolognese rallied to his flag. So many came that he doubled the size of his company to 200 mounted crossbowmen without permission. If Venice was sending sailors to defend the ramparts of Treviso, then he must have figured it would be just fine with Venice for him to grow his company. It was certainly just fine with Lucius Malvezzi. But Andre Gritti had a problem with Malvezzi. The specifics are vague, but it appears Lucius Malvezzi got into a fight with Gritti over Rangoni's troops. It may have been because Rangoni doubled the size of his company without permission. Maybe the bean counter in Gritti chafed at this. Maybe. But this is doubtful. Venice was over a barrel and needed all the troops they could lay their hands on. The fight more likely developed because Malvezzi insisted that the light cavalry serve directly under him. Directly under him as part of his company. Malvezzi had convinced Rangoni to switch sides. He and Rangoni were both Bolognese and would fight better together. But Gritti wanted Venice to have control of all of Guido's troops. In Gritti's mind, they were his troops, or at least the troops of the general Venice had commanded to go to Padua, the one who would lead the defense. With the challenges facing Padua, it was critical that the men be united in agreement, that all men in the garrison be of one purpose. But neither Gritti nor Malvezzi was willing to back down. 
the key to breaking this deadlock is a character who's come up in our history before. Seven years after the Siege of Padua, he was going to be the host of the duel between Guido Rangoni and Hugo Popoli. He was married to Isabella d'Este, the woman who hosted the Bentavoglio before when no one else would take them in, when no one else would dare the wrath of Pope Julius II. He was the Marquis of Mantua, Francesco Gonzaga. The Marquis was also a condottieri in his own right, one of the leading condottieri in Italy. In 1509, during the struggle against Venice, he was in the service of the King of France. Even though he was on the winning side so far, the war had gone badly for Marquis Francesco. After a promising start to his military career, decades before he had become, well, a mediocre commander. This failure can be laid at the door of the one thing that he most excelled at, getting laid. The Marquis was a notorious pussyhound. It seems that the main job of his courtiers was to procure him more fresh beauties to conquer. The Marquis did not just stop there, though. He had a fondness, too, for young men, a relatively common predilection among Italian nobles. But in a letter to a Milanese condottieri, the Marquis boasted that unlike other nobles, he only partied at the back doors of others and never at his own. In other words... He took pride in always being a pitcher and never a catcher. Thus, Francesco Gonzaga can rightly be called the ass master of Mantua. Now, it might seem puritanical to say he frittered away his virility between the sheets. But being an ass master in the 16th century had a major drawback. Syphilis had come to a promiscuous culture, a culture without the many modern-day protections. And it had gone viral. Gonzaga had it bad. He had it worse, probably, than any other condottieri of his age. In 1509, during the beginning of the War of the League of Cambrai against Venice, Syphilis had completely incapacitated him. He had been unable to join the French army when they crushed the Venetians at Agnadello. The King of France now called him a coward. This boded ill for Gonzaga. It boded ill for the safety of his domain. His woes only became worse when Venice just crumbled after their defeat. To the Marquis, it looked like he would never have a chance to prove himself. The fall of Padua may have been terrible for his allies. It was certainly a tragedy for Leonardo Trissino. But for Gonzaga, it was an opportunity, an opportunity for redemption he would have a chance to prove he was no coward, that he was still a great general in Condottieri, a great fighter. He immediately built up an army in Mantua and prepared to invade the territory of Padua. Just as he was about to move out, he received wonderful news. A large body of enemy cavalry, the Stradioti, was wanting to change sides. They wanted to leave Venice and join him. This would be a real coup for the Marquis. It would elevate him in the eyes of the French. It would put him in the A-League of the Condottieri of Italy once again. There were even rumors that Lucius Malvezzi himself was going to change sides, that he'd had enough of dealing with Venetian bean counters. The Marquis of Mantua entrusted the surrender and the arrangements of it to one of his commanders, the Lord of Mirandola, you might remember him as the man who 
buried a sword into the chest of Mancino da Bologna at the end of our second episode. The force coming to surrender turned out to be even larger than expected. Something along the lines of 2,500 men, women, and children converged on the camp of the Army of Mantua. At dawn, they presented themselves at the gate, which was opened to them. The commander of the gate was present to receive Malvezzi's sword as a token of surrender. The white flags of surrender were too hanging from the crowd. And then something happened. The exact details of how things went down have been lost to time. But most likely at a prearranged signal, the supposed army of deserters leaped to the attack. The signal itself was probably when Lucius Malvezzi presented his sword in surrender to the commander of the camp. The men of the Marquis were completely surprised by these fake deserters. Within minutes, this carefully planned ambush overwhelmed their defenses. Bolognese and Umbrian infantry teamed with Stradiotti going through the camp and overrunning it, rampaging through the camp, capturing many prisoners and valuable booty. Gonzaga himself was still asleep, no doubt after a night of dissipation and debauchery with a young woman, a young man, or some combination of the two. The Lord of Mirandola was also away from the camp. This wild fracas in the camp soon roused the sleeping Marquis. He could have grabbed a sword. He could have led his men against the enemy. He could have stirred a great resistance. But a lifetime of dissipation had taken its toll upon him. He instead leaped from a window of the farmhouse where he was staying. He bolted away and hid in a nearby field of uncut wheat. The stalks slightly stooped as it hung with nearly ripe grain. Now the Marquis of Mantua may have been sleeping in, but farmers in the 1500s awoke at the same time farmers always have, and there were many around at the time. One farmer soon found the Marquis hiding in his field. The Marquis offered the farmer a fortune, enough to make him a rich man if he would just stay silent. But the farmer had had enough of the French. He'd had enough of all of the enemies of Venice. The common people were sick of all of the people invading Venice and the terrible things they were doing. So this farmer instead called to three of his fellow farmers to secure the Marquis and to fetch Lucius Malvezzi. Out of gratitude to the farmers, Malvezzi gave them red satin jackets. He could afford to be generous. The sneak attack had yielded him an enormous fortune. As leader and mastermind of the attack, he would get the best share of it, too. Something like 1,800 horses were captured, and not just horses. There was artillery, there was armor, weapons, jewelry. The full sum amounted to some 20,000 ducats. And that, of course, didn't count the potential ransom for the Marquis of Mantua, Francesco Gonzaga. Andre Gritti could hardly refuse Lucius now, so a deal was worked out between them. When Guido Rangoni arrived in Padua with his light crossbowmen, half of them, 100 men, served under Guido in the company of Lucius Malvezzi, while the other half would serve directly under Andre Gritti. 
As to the Marquis, things were going from bad to worse. Normally, a captured dignitary would be treated with some grace and with some style, but Venice was in an ugly mood. When the Venetians paraded the Marquis through the streets of the city, the people tore at his fine clothes and spit upon him. There were calls for summary execution for treason, as he had once been a Venetian condottieri, but these were ignored. Normally, noble prisoners captured in war were kept in comfortable accommodations, but not the Marquis. Venice sent him to their prison. When the jailer said, we are honored to have the Marquis of Mantua as a guest, Gonzaga corrected him. The Marquis of Mantua is still in Mantua with his mother. He meant his son, of course, who was under the care of Isabella d'Este. For years, she had endured marriage to the ineffectual and philandering Marquis of Mantua and longed for the opportunity to rule on her own. It was no easy task to govern a small state trying to stay independent among the large warring powers, but she had not been raised to do easy things. The very first thing she seems to have done was to have Lord Mirandola punish the village where the camp had been located. This Mirandola did with great relish. He slew every peasant in the area around the village that he could find, from newborn babies to the oldest crones. He had them all killed without mercy or pity. He especially tracked down the four peasants that had found the Marquis and made sure everyone knew about their deaths. Everyone had to know that loyalty to Venice didn't pay. A red satin jacket was not worth dying for, even if it hid the bloodstains well. Sure, it was cruel, but the deed suited Isabella d'Este well. Like female rulers throughout history, she had to prove to all her subjects that she had teeth and was willing to use them. Not long after she took charge, a group of nobles from Mantua came to her to pledge their allegiance to her and her husband. The stage was now set for the great drama of the Siege of Padua, the largest battle to take place on the peninsula since the days of the Roman emperors. Hugo Popoli would only know of it by the stories told thereafter as he passed the hours chained in his cell by the cruel and treacherous Cardinal Alidosi. But Guido Rangoni would have better than a front row seat. He would be one of the players that fretted and strutted their hour upon the stage and would so raise his name and his glory to among the foremost ranks of condottieri in Italy. another episode of Le Arte dell'Arme, the Bolognese podcast. Keep your eyes peeled in the coming weeks for supplemental episodes featuring Devin Borman and Jen Yandels about cavalry tactics and Puck Curtis talking about Spanish fencing in Destreza. Stay tuned for that and stay saucy, my friends.